Amen. If you have your Bibles, keep them open at Ecclesiastes um, 1. But let me just start. We're starting a new series, and I am so I have to do my best this morning not to kind of be an excited bunny about what we're going to be doing for the rest of the term. But it's excellent. It is, it is so exciting. We're going to be doing this right through to Easter. And Ecclesiastes is one of those books which is just a bit different. It's not the kind of obvious book we'd go to for our daily Bible reading when we're feeling low and feeling like the need for help. But the truths that are in here are amazing. The truths that are in Ecclesiastes are really brilliant. And, and there are a number of reasons why. The reasons are the style with which it's written. The way that it's written is almost in itself an illustration of what is going on. It is all about how we live and what life is all about. The big questions that we ask. And as someone who has studied the, the book for the last while and who has tried to um, map out how we're going to preach it, the structure of the book is almost impossible to really get a grasp of, which is an illustration of what the book is talking about, which is that life is just messy sometimes. Life is really messy, and we have to figure out how we wisely live in this world. And the, the style with which the book is written is, is almost that this man, the preacher, who's the person who speaks for most of the book, he just looks and observes the world around him, and then has just some little teachings for us in it. He just looks at the world around us, looks at everything that he sees. And my hope is, is that as we do this, what he does is he just opens our eyes to let us sit in a bit longer what it is we're looking at in the world around us. And he just opens our eyes to what is going on. And it just hits us differently. Some of us are kind of type A people that are all up here. And Romans was a great book because it's really logical and questioned and just goes through it. Some of us are more artistic and it just hits us in the gut. And that's what Ecclesiastes does. It hits us just completely differently. Almost catches off guard. Almost puts his arm around us and then just kind of stabs us in the gut with a sword. And then for 12 chapters just wriggles it around inside of us, making us question everything that we do. If you've seen Star Wars, it's like the, the bullet going into the Death Star and just exploding it from the inside out. And we have to kind of pick up the pieces and figure out what we do with this. That's what Ecclesiastes does for us. And it's a brilliant book in doing that. But before we dive into Romans, eh, Romans 1, Ecclesiastes 1, oh, sorry. before we dive into Ecclesiastes 1, I'm going to look at the end. Do the thing we're never meant to do in a book and see where we finish. I had a few want to read us this because this is helpful to know because it's not until about Easter weekend that we're going to be here. So it's a wee while away. But we're going to be dropping in all the time to Ecclesiastes 12 to figure out, um, just to understand what it is he's trying to teach us because this is his kind of final statement. After all his observing and philosophizing, which we're going to run through for the next 12 chapters, he finishes with this point. And he starts in verse 8. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanities. If you've noticed, that's exactly what he says in 1 verse 2. He starts and finishes the book in the same way. And we'll look at that in a wee second. But his final words are this in verse 13. After all his observing, after he's looked at the world and studied it, after he's chased after everything from, from women to wealth to everything in between, just chased after all that his heart desired, looked at everything that he could see. This is how he finished. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is the whole duty of humankind, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The chief end of man, our whole purpose, is to worship God. And without that, everything is meaningless. That's what he'll say. 
That is quite a stark, stark thing to say. But that's what he says, and that's what we'll be saying for the next wee while. And, and at the end of the series, my hope is, I have two hopes. One is that if you have never trusted in Jesus, that you will look at the world around you, just like he does, and just say the th- same thing, it's meaningless. All of this makes absolutely no point. Chasing after all these things have never brought me the security, satisfaction, and joy that I long for. So what he's talking about must be right. But the other thing for us as Christians who are sitting here today, I think what this does is it just shakes us up a wee bit. Makes us realize that the tracks that we've kind of just been walking down, just the patterns of life and the habits that we have, chasing after these things are not how we're meant to live. We're not meant to find our satisfaction, our joy in our work, in our money, in things, but in God himself. And in saying that, what is brilliant about Ecclesiastes, does not, he doesn't say, so therefore, go to church every Sunday, pray as much as you can, read your Bible as often as you can, though he does say that. What he says is, all of those things that you've put your hope in, all of those things like work and family and money are good and you can enjoy them. It actually frees us up to enjoy all the things that God has given us, realizing that they are not the end, but a means to the end. They are a way for us to love God and love his people. That's exciting, right? That just whets your appetite for what is coming. But before we do that, let's depress ourselves with Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let's have a look at what it says, because he starts with a real bang. And remember, this is written about... Sorry, I'm going to move this a wee bit. Annoying me. There we go. He starts with a real bang, but he asks the question that we still ask today. This is this perennial human being problem. What is the point in all of this? Remember, this is written probably two and a half thousand years ago, and we're two and a half thousand years down the line, and we still don't have a really good answer for this, really. So let's have a look at what he says. And he starts with that phrase in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. If you have an NIV, you'll see that it says meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. If you have another translation, it might say futility, futility. All All that goes to show is that the word is actually really hard to translate that he's talking about. I wouldn't do this often, but the Hebrew word for it is hevel. And the reason I tell you that is because the, the word almost changes shape wherever it's used. And the, the idea, the picture that it's meant to picture for us is, is almost like a vapor or a mist or a bit of smoke that comes off the candle after you've blown it out. And it's this idea of transience. It's this idea of unable to grab hold of it, that it just kind of leaves, that it's kind of insignificant. That's what he says. And when you read it in the Hebrew, what it says is, hevel, hevel, says preacher, hevel, hevel, all, he-. everything is pointless. Everything is futile. Everything is meaningless. Everything is like vapor, and we can't fully get a grasp of it. He's, just, he's, he's a really cheery guy, the preacher, as you'll see throughout the rest of the book. He holds this kind of idea that we see in the world around us of just this nihilistic view that he can't figure out what the point in all of this is. Life, he says, is this vapor that we can't grab. It's this breath, this, this blown away in the wind. And so he asks that question right from the start in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
What is the point in life? That's his question from the very beginning. What is the point in chasing after all of these things? What is the point in doing all these things? And he grabs their attention. And I think it's not just a, a kind of question that they would have had back in Israel back in those days. To prove that this is a question we still have today, if you look in Waterstones, you will see the self-help book trying to, section just kind of filled. There are many books trying to figure out how we do life. Or the idea that we love the coming-of-age film where someone finds their purpose in what they're doing. Because we can all resonate with that. Or if you have a husband who has bought a car in his 50s that is really sporty and his midlife crisis, that'll tell you that all of us are searching for this purpose, this meaning in life. What is the point in all the work, in all that we do? So that is the kind of headline, and then he goes into a poem. And I have two points for us this morning. What's the point? I should have noticed that. We have, what's the point? We have two points. We have two points. First one is the preacher's point. And then we're going to walk through what he talks about our life as. And then we're just going to finish just with a purpose. We're going to finish. Oh, my, my worry this morning is that no one will come back for the next couple of weeks because it's pretty dark what he talks about. It's pretty dark. But what he's doing is he's opening our eyes to this is the world that we live in. And we, pray, we do make-believe. We, we play around in our Ikea kitchen thinking that everything there is we've made it up in this world. But actually, that's nonsense. And we need to have reality checks. We need to have a look around at what is going on. And he does that for us. And he says three things about our life in this poem. Three things he says about our life. He says that our life is a vapor. Let me read verses four to six. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. You see the idea, the generation goes and comes, the sun goes and comes, the wind goes and comes, it goes round and round and round. It's not a really lovely metaphor of what the earth is doing. It's about the monotony of what is going on. It's about the cyclical nature of what is going on. Generation comes, generation goes, and on the large scale of things, we do nothing to affect that. We are kind of vapor in this world. We are transient. We have nothing that we can add because the only thing that we leave when we die is the same earth that was there when we started. That is it. All of it is transient, is kind of going and going and going. It makes us ask the question. I think what he's trying to do is he's saying the thing that you're stressing about that keeps you up that you think about day in and day out, in the end doesn't really matter. And then on the large scale of things, makes no difference at all. All of it is hebel. All of it is a waste of time. I leave one thing behind when I die, and it's the earth that I live on. And just think of this, a generation comes, a generation goes. He says later in um, verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance. If you see the little four in the Bible that you have, it says just above that, if you have a church Bible, former people will be forgotten, later people will be gone. If you think, think back through your great-great-grandparents, do you know their name? There's a good chance, and this is where people start doing their maths, there's a good chance that they were alive 100 years ago if they were fit and healthy, and we do not remember their name. Our names will be forgotten in probably 100 years, even within our own families. Life here is just 
a mist. And it goes away. And the question is, what is the point in all this? This isn't just the preacher says this. Ricky Gervais says this. Ricky Gervais is a funny man. I wouldn't recommend him too much. But he has a great way of observing the world. And this is what he says. For 13 and a half billion years, we don't exist. Then we have about 80 years, then we die. Never to exist again. That's it. The only thing you can do is make your 80 or 90 years, if you're lucky, the very best they can be. It's not just the preacher who preaches this. This is people who observe the world that we live in today asking, what is the point? Let's carry on. Let's get a bit more down into what he says. Look at verse 6 and 7, 7 and 8, sorry. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they go, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. This is, this is, I think, where the poetry is brilliant. Hebrew poetry is brilliant because it doesn't rhyme in words like we think. It actually rhymes in images, which is amazing because it means that we can translate it and still understand what he's getting at all the years down the line. And the images are brilliant. He carries on the, the theme of kind of world order. You see sun going, you see earth remaining, wind blowing, streams flowing. But he says, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. Is that not brilliant? All the water in the world is flowing, but it is never full. He carries on, the eye is not satisfied with all of its seeing, nor the ear filled with all that is going on. Our life is elusive, it is cyclical. We can never fully grab the thing that we're chasing after. It comes and goes. We are coming and going, but not really going anywhere. We're on this life journey, but I have no idea where the end is. That is what he is saying. The life that we live, we are seeking and never filling. And I think what he's saying is that the rat race never ends. The rat race that we put ourselves on never ends. The person who trains for probably their most of their life for the Tour de France, who trains all of those years for that yellow jacket, when he finally gets it, that is one of hundreds and thousands of people who have tried, when that one person gets it, he celebrates, and it might be everything he dreamed of. And he'll celebrate and do the press tours afterwards. Then he might rest, and then he's probably going to get back on his bike and try again next year. That is, that is, that is what it says. If you think of the famous musician, I couldn't think of a good kind of pinnacle of the music world because I'm not that. But he plays the Royal Albert Hall, see. He trains all his life for the Royal Albert Hall, plays the violin, and he plays it to the best of his ability. He plays that one night, and it is everything again that he dreamed of. And then he rests, and then he has to aim higher, or he has to aim for something else. And that's it, is this cyclical nature, never fully satisfying. That's not just in the, the sports world or the, the music world, in our jobs, the job that you have sought after, and you finally get, there's probably someone paid higher or more or has more power. There's probably the people who chase after family and have children and think that will finally do it. They realize quickly, it's great and it's good, but it doesn't scratch that itch that is down in our soul. A man called Blaise Pascal, he's a um, philosopher from the 17th century, he says, if our condition were truly happy, we should not need to divert ourselves from thinking about it. If we were really, really satisfied, we wouldn't have to put all of these things in the way to distract ourselves from it. 
And that's it. And he carries on again just to finish off this lovely poem that the um, preacher has for us. Verses 9 to 11. He says, first, you're not here alone. You don't have much effect on the global world. You won't find what you're searching for. You'll never be satisfied. And then he says, and there's nothing new. All of it has been done before. What has been, it will be. What has been done, will be done. Is um, And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. It is the same old, same old. Nothing new. Nothing lasts. That's how he starts his book. That's what he wants us to know. And it's not to say that we don't invent electric cars or we're able to FaceTime people in Australia, and that's not amazing. That's a really great thing. But travel has always been a thing. Communication has always been a thing. And we still have the same old perennial problems within us. Nothing is new. Nothing solves or sorts out the problem that we're chasing after. Nothing is new. And nothing lasts. This is the state of our world. That is what the preacher wants us to know. If I was to sum up, I'd say this, without God, our life is this never-ending, constantly cyclical world of purposelessness. Without God, this is the world that we see and know today. And it's not just me, Ricky Gervais says it too. The preacher says it. And I think the purpose that he has this is just where we're going to kind of finish. I just wanted to run through what the poem is saying and then just jump in in what he wants us to know. Because we're going to be doing this as we go through the whole series. He starts his book this way to give us the answers that he has. But he wants to, us to see the consequences of the fast approaching disappearance from the world that we have. He wants us to know all of the realities and then to change how we live because of that. He wants us to see the transient nature, the mist that our life is. We think we are so significant and we are unique and wonderfully made, but ultimately the world will keep spinning. The world will keep going and we'll have to leave it all behind. He wants to shock us to say that without God, this is what life is like. That maybe this is why many people drown their sorrows to hide away from this and drink. Maybe this is why we medicate ourselves to get away from the thinking that we can't sit in a dark room for very long without driving ourselves crazy. It's why we distract ourselves knowing that death is somewhere along the line and we'll do everything to stop thinking about it and our insignificance. The broken, cursed world is futile and it leads us to understand what's going on. Life under the sun is this never-ending, cyclical world of purposelessness. But we don't leave it there. Ecclesiastes leaves us there, but we know that there's more to the story. And I'm not just going to shove Jesus in in the answer, but I am. Jesus solves these problems because, if you see, what does this man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. This is what the world is like. It is broken. It is cursed. From Genesis chapter 3, this is what the world has been. Jesus comes to restore this by coming out with 
our world. God himself steps into the problem to fix it. He steps into the problem to rescue us from this futile world. Let me show you where it comes from the Bible. Look at Romans chapter 8. We looked at this about a month ago. If you have your Bibles, flick to it. I can hear the pages flicking. That's good. Romans chapter 8. We looked at this just over a month ago. This says the same thing for consider it. He says, verse 19 of chapter 8. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of sons because for the creation was subjected to futility. That same word is the word that is translated into the Greek version of the Old Testament. That frustration, that hebel. The world was subjected to frustration, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. Jesus comes to restore and redeem this broken, broken world from all its futility, from all the kind of chasing after and the transient nature of our lives. He comes to restore and fix that. The cyclical nature of the world, the hamster wheel that we run on, he comes to save us from that. And it's not just a a future hope. It's not just that one day we will be saved from it. Jesus, as he speaks to the woman of the Samaria at the well, she offers him some water. And he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The preacher wants us to know exactly what the world is like. And he's looking for a, a, a fixing of this problem. And Jesus comes and says, I bring purpose. I bring point. What we'll see, what is amazing through the book of Ecclesiastes, as I said, is that he says all of those things that we chase after, they're good and we can enjoy them. But when we have them as our idol, as the thing that makes us, that gives us identity and purpose and meaning, it is only ever going to let you down. If it is in your wife, your wife is never meant to be everything that you wanted. If it is in your job, your job is never meant to be everything that you ever wanted. If it is in the, the achievements that you have, it is in how people see you, that is never meant to hold all of your joy and worship. Only God is. And he wants us to know this. Jesus comes to offer a future hope, but also purpose and meaning and joy and satisfaction now to enjoy the gifts that God has for us. And I'll just finish with with this. The first is that if you are not a Christian, all of us, all of us can see the brokenness of the world. All of us have scars from the brokenness of the world. My question would be, the things that you're chasing to could put plasters over those issues. Is it fixing it now? Is that giving you the purpose, satisfaction, joy? Is it scratching the itch of your soul deep down? Ecclesiastes would tell us it isn't. For us as Christians, 
the, the idea that the wind, look at verse 6, the wind blows to the south, goes round to the north, sorry, it's back in Ecclesiastes, round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. It's this idea that it's just kind of working away. It's on the circuits, it's on the paths. We get into these bad habits and patterns in our life that we run into, and sometimes we need to be shaken to realize we've taken our eyes off the prize. We aren't worshiping God in all that we do. We get broken when things go wrong because we realize we're putting our hope and purpose in something else. We want to be reshaped by this, knowing that this life is a mist. This life will just go like that. We want to reshape our lives in light of that. What is the point in all of our toil? Without God, it's futility. With God, it is fulfillment. With God, it is reorientating to what our creator created us to be. We will mess up. We will falter from that. But that is where we find true security, joy. Fear God, follow his ways, and enjoy him forever. That's how the preacher starts his book. There is so much more to look at, and we'll look at it over the rest of the series, see all his observations. But this morning, I think he just wants us to look at the world, look around us, and see, does that give us everything we want? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we, we st- I stand here this morning, we sit here this morning thinking through what is our life, what is the point of all of this. As Christians, we wonder where have we taken our eye off the prize? Where have we put our hope and security in something else? Where are we chasing after with all of our ambitions? Where are we not looking to you for our joy? The world around us is exciting, but it is elusive. It offers much, but promises little. Lord God, we pray this morning that we would be shaped by this book over this coming term. That we'd be able to dig down into what is going on in our small groups and how this affects us week by week. That we'd wrestle with the big, big questions that you put before us. And we pray that in all of this we're not trite in how we speak of Jesus, but we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the brokenness of this world. He fixes that problem for us. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. And pray us in your name. Amen.